And so don't knock it over. All right, yeah. Can you hear me okay? Too hot? Is it too hot? Is it uh, the mic? Is it too hot? Is it's it okay? Too low. All right, I might get excited, but probably not too bad. It's lit, right? Okay. All right. Thank you, Joe, very much. Um, Elder Joe is such a dear friend and a colleague. Uh, I um, look to Joe a lot of times for wisdom on the standing committee and as a fellow priest in the diocese. So when he asked me a couple years ago, I was like, yes, of course. Um, and then, of course, we know what happened in the last couple of years, so it's great to finally be here. Um, this is not my first time at Church of Our Savior, and it's so great to be back. Uh, I remember many, many years ago when I was thinking about going into the priesthood, John Powering was assigned to me as a mentor. And I spent actually a good deal of time right here. Uh, I preached a couple of times, uh, sat in on some classes, did a lot of different things, whatever John wanted me to do, and just gave me a feel for what parish life was like. And it, it set me up well. All the times I came here, I really enjoyed, when, you know, you pull on campus, and I know it's pretty rainy today, but to look out there at the river, the beautiful St. John's River, and I just fell in love with the space and this sacred space here, and certainly fell in love with the people. And I do recognize some familiar faces and uh, looking forward to meeting some new people also. The river is really important to me in, in my journey in a lot of ways. Uh, I love the St. John's River. I spent many years as an adult before going to seminary in St. Augustine and uh, near the water down there, the same St. John's River. Um, and I now live on one of the tributaries of the St. John's called the Pottsburg Creek. So some of you may be familiar with that. We live up there, and we looked around when I was, the bishop asked me to come back to Jacksonville to take a parish, and when I was coming back to Jacksonville, my husband and I looked around for a piece of property. We wanted to be on the river, um, and we, we finally, after a year-long search, found the perfect place for us. So when we go out in our backyard, we see the river. We see the, the life. We see the natural world, the plants and the animals, this whole ecosystem. And it really has supplied me with so many metaphors for the spiritual life. And this season of Lent, as I've re reflected on making a meaningful Lent, I've thought a lot about meaningful Lent as we move closer to God, one in which we focus on God and our relationship to God so that we will know God more fully. And for me, that metaphor of the ebb and flow of the river, it's, it's a wonderful metaphor for, this, for my spiritual journey. As I search, as I seek, as I want to be on this quest to move closer to God, now, on the massive St. Jones River, the movement of the tides are noticeable. So if you've ever spent any time on the river, you can tell if it's the tides coming in and out. 
But when you're on one of the smaller little tributaries, when you're on the Pottsburg Creek, the effects of that regular movement of the water in and out is so obvious. It's so clear. There's no doubt whether it's high tide or low tide or somewhere in between. In our backyard, the water's always moving. Always. The water moves pretty quickly, at a quick pace most of the time. Always either moving in or moving out. When it's moving in, the water level rises up on the banks of the river. When it moves out, depending on the time of the year, a lot of times you can see the muddy bottom of the river at a lot of points in the creek, in the, in the Hotspur Creek. The river's never totally still, even when it's like that exact in-between point. You know, you can tell there's some movement there. The river's either flowing in, filling up the banks with an abundance of rich life and water, or the river's flowing out, leaving behind a dry and desolate riverbank. Folks, our relationship with God is never totally still. Our relationship with God is either moving closer to God, a more intimate connection where those abundant waters just flow and overflow, or we're moving further away from God into the parched, dry land where our apathy, where our neglect create a chasm between us and God. In our spiritual life, we must be intentional. We must seek God. We must find ways to nurture that relationship. Only then will we change the direction of a spiritual journey where we're moving away from God. Only then will we change directions and move closer to God. That is the Lenten journey. An intentional and focused journey, seeking God more clearly and more fully in our lives. For me, that is what makes a more meaningful Lent. Now, of course, there are many ways to move closer to God. You all are here on a rainy, rainy night. So many spiritual disciplines do guide us closer to this closeness, to this more personal, this more meaningful relationship with Jesus. Prayer, fasting, service, they are so vital to a spiritual journey. Tonight, I want to talk to you more about engaging our minds, engaging our intellect, our God-given ability to reason, to question, as we seek a closer relationship with Jesus. One of the things I really love about the Anglican tradition is that we're encouraged to use our brains. I love that. We are told 
that scripture, tradition, and reason are all equal parts of a three-legged stool. And if one of those legs, scripture, tradition, or reason, is longer than the other two, we are out of balance. I suggest that at this Lenten season, we should allow ourselves to be challenged, to stretch our understandings, to challenge ourselves to think in different ways, to question, to ask those big questions of faith. Our faith, the scripture, the nature of God, what are those things that's just you're wrestling with right now? questions that many people ask and have been asking since the beginning of God's creation. Some of those questions have been around for a long, long time. And many of the big questions of faith are not unique and new to us. But that doesn't mean we can't ask them. If they've already been asked, people have been wrestling with them and there can be more clarity. Now, some questions don't have answers because God is God and we are not. But we can ask the questions and we can wrestle together with those. So I remember the very first time I was with someone who asked a question about God's actions. When my brother questions why God put us in this horrible situation, Excuse me. I remember that night very well. Right after I had turned 16 years old, my dad was very ill in the hospital. And on the second or third night that he was in ICU, my three brothers and I and my mom were struggling to keep it together. Our priest came by and came to see us in the waiting room. And my oldest brother, Lori, asked the priest, why is God doing this to our family? Why is our dad dying? Up to that point in my young spiritual journey, I never thought to question my faith. I never thought to question God. I guess I just thought that a faithful, Christ, a faithful Christian should have faith. I shouldn't question God or God's actions or God's non-actions. And, and that worked well for me for the first 16 years of my life. But now, my world was rocked. And I was struggling to make sense of the harsh reality of my dad dying. It's not the only time grief has brought out a lot of questions for God in my life. I share that same journey that some of you share of losing my husband, losing my spouse. Boy, I had some questions. Since those experiences of asking God why bad things happen to good people, asking God
not about pain and suffering. Since that time, as a 16-year-old, I've been on an intellectual journey of faith. I know it hasn't been consistent. I've had some times of taking a break, but, but I have been on that journey. Remember, either moving in or out, closer to God or further away. There have been those times of further away. But I've been on an intellectual journey of faith. A spiritual journey in which I've asked the big questions of faith and I have sought real answers. It has not diminished my faith. It has not diminished my faith. On the contrary, my quest to seek answers to these difficult questions has put me on a path of moving closer to God. And in my quest for answers, the abundance of God's love and mercy has washed over me, filling me with a joy and a peace of a close relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Even when life circumstances, and I can say really, especially in really difficult times, I have had a peace and a joy that I cannot explain because of staying on that journey or getting back on that journey in some cases. In the times when I'm seeking to know God more fully and asking the hard questions, my spiritual life has been at high tide. During Lent, when we're seeking to find more meaning in our spiritual lives, when we seek to make a more meaningful Lent, let's look for meaning. Let's search for answers to encounter God in a reasoned approach. To seek an intellectual encounter with God. I've often turned to the best Christian apologist of the day. An apologist is a defender of the faith. A Christian apologist is a defender of the Christian faith. But there's Jewish apologists, there's Muslim apologists. Well, Christian apologists that most speak to me, at least at this time in my journey, are C.S. Lewis and Timothy Keller. Timothy Keller and C.S. Lewis have somewhat similar faith journeys. Both were born into Christian homes. Both began to have doubts about God early in life. For C.S. Lewis's doubts and subsequent atheism began after his mother died when he was a boy. And he had prayed to God when she was sick for her to get better, and that didn't happen. And that really rocked his relationship with God. Timothy Keller began to have serious doubts as a young college student. He set out to prove God didn't exist. Both Lewis and Keller came to experience God and become unshakable defenders of the faith through their intellectual pursuit. 
Some people come to God first through an experience. And that's certainly real. But you can come to know God, and you can come to have a closer relationship with God through an intellectual pursuit. As they try to disprove God, C.S. Lewis and Timothy Keller, they found God. As they denied God's existence, they discovered the certainty of God. And after they discovered the evidence of God intellectually, they both experienced God. They had those experiences that had been lacking before, or they thought were lacking before. They experienced God in and throughout their lives. C.S. Lewis is no longer living, but Timothy Keller is. First, C.S. Lewis and Timothy Keller were intellectually able to defend their Christian faith after they had asked the big questions, after they had searched and wrestled and tried to say there can't be a God, I've never experienced God, or I've experienced the opposite of God, the absence of God. They have become some of the most renowned, greatest apologists, Christian apologists of our time. Now, C.S. Lewis, you've like, likely heard of him, and many of you have probably read, has anybody read a book of C.S. Lewis? Yeah, some of you. He's a prolific writer. He's written many different work, works. His fantasy series, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, is still read today, a lot of times by children, but a lot of adults discover it because it has a lot of theology in it. It has a lot of defense of the Christian faith. A great movie that I think is pretty good, as you know, books that are always better, but it's not bad. It's not bad at all. And while he's a great fiction fantasy writer, his apologetic work is just amazing and has really been influential for me. C.S. Lewis, in defending his Christian faith, really has drawn me further into my intellectual pursuit. Books like The Screwtape Letters, which is also has a fantasy element to it. The Great Divorce, talking about heaven and hell. Surprised by Joy, just a few of his many, many works. They engage the reader, explaining who Jesus is, how Jesus works in and among our world and in our lives. A Lenten reading of Lewis is a very effective way of making Lent more meaningful. Timothy Keller, that other current and very prolific Christian writer. Keller is a Presbyterian minister. He's now retired from day-to-day -day kind of operations, but he planted a church in very secular and pluralistic New York City. And people said, you are crazy. You're going to plant an Orthodox church 
in the middle of New York City? And he did. And he stuck to that orthodoxy. What makes us Christian? That congregation has grown to more than 12 locations, big locations, tens of thousands of members, many different satellite sites. Keller's ministry now goes on, continues as a writer. Uh, I see his blogs all the time. He's on all social media. As an apologist, he has led many people, non-believers, through their intellectual quest to either find God or deny God, he has led so many people to God, to Jesus, as he defends his own faith, his Christian faith. One of Keller's best-selling books is called The Reason for God. The Reason for God. Subtitled, Belief in a Time of Skepticism. If you've been around young people at all, you know that this is a very skeptical time. That book asks a lot of questions and seeks to start the conversation. Most big questions, questions of our faith are not easily answered in a chapter, and Keller doesn't pretend to do that, but he addresses it and gives you a running start. Some of the things that, um, some of the chapters are, how can there be just one true religion? In a time when people say, well, can't all religions be right? How could a good God allow suffering? As I told you, I like that chapter. How can a loving God send people to hell? This one I get all the time at the school. Hasn't science disproved Christianity? I love that question now. How can you take the Bible literally? I get that one a lot too. Those are just a few of the questions. And again, it's a starting point. But Keller's very well read, very learned. And he quotes a lot of people, gives you a lot of resources to keep going if you're interested in doing that. Keller wrestles with big questions that so many Christians have asked at different times in our lives, and in some cases throughout our lives. I've wrestled probably with most of those questions at some point or another, some more serious than others. And as I've wrestled with these questions, as I've explored my doubts and wondered about truth, I move closer to God. My questioning and seeking a deeper relationship with Jesus, that's brought me closer to Jesus. Now, not all questions that I have and that other Christians have, like I've said, are, are easily answered. You certainly can't answer them in a chapter or a book most, in most cases. But you can start. And some things do have answers. I can answer that question about hasn't science disproved Christianity. In the season of Lent, 
linking meaning of the resurrection. So as I zoom in and I focus on God, and I think about, okay, what intellectual pursuit, what meaning am I looking for? Well, the resurrection. In a few weeks, we're going to be journeying through Holy Week, through the passion of Christ, Christ's suffering and death. I was raised Roman Catholic. I was not trying to leave the Catholic Church at all, but I met my, my first husband, and he was Methodist, I was Catholic. We were trying to find a place to worship together. Someone suggested the Episcopal Church. I would give it a try. It happened to be very near Holy Week. Now, remember, I was raised Roman Catholic, but I, I, for whatever reason, I hadn't experienced Holy Week in the way I would when I first came to the Episcopal Church. And my husband and I went to everything that this church had available from the beginning of Holy Week, Holy Week all the way through. I mean, when I think of it today, that was a long time ago. That was so transformational for me. I mean, I fell in love with the Episcopal Church because of that experience. But I fell in love with Jesus and what Jesus did for us all over again. And I, that sacramental week, that journeying through the suffering and death of Christ totally changed my walk with Christ and it changed my journey. That initial entry into the Episcopal Church, that long, hard week through Holy Week to get to Easter, Before, I had just jumped over somehow Holy Week to get to Easter. And yeah, Easter always, since a little kid, that's special, right? Lots of people in church, beautiful flowers, great music, lots of that word we can't say right now. Yeah, it was great and I always loved Easter, but I had no idea what Easter was until I went through Holy Week. Throughout the years, because of that experience, I have asked and sought answers to so many big questions about Christ's suffering and death. And this struggle and this questioning have led me to a deeper and more meaningful relationship with Jesus. Observing Holy Week, I mean truly walking through the rich liturgies. Monday, Thursday? Wow. Going through that, the sacramental presence of God, the passion narratives, has made the joy of the resurrection into much more than I could ever imagine, ever explain to anyone. You've got to experience it, right? If you want to have a more meaningful Lent, observe, observe every moment of Holy Week. 
participate in every single service available. You all are obviously already on the journey. You're here during Lent. Keep it going during Holy Week. Read and study the scripture of Holy Week. Maybe we shouldn't allow people to enter church on Easter unless they've journeyed through Holy Week. You know, punch card or something? And maybe that won't work. But, but they're missing out. They're missing out. Easter, the meaning and significance of the resurrection, means so much more when we have made that journey through Jesus' suffering and death. So I told you that the resurrection, that's kind of my focus right now, just seeking the meaning of the resurrection, the defining moment of our Christian faith, the event in which all of our hope rests, the foundation of Christian hope is the resurrection. Have you ever wondered about the resurrection? Again, I'm with young people. I was going to say little people, they're bigger than me, but I'm with young people all the time. And believe me, the resurrection is one of those things, along with science, that comes up a lot. And so a lot of times it's related to science for them. You know, maybe you have simply believed Maybe you have questioned, and it's okay either way. I've been in both of those places. I just want to look at a few things about the, the, the resurrection that are commonly questioned or discussed as we journey through Lent towards Easter. There's so many things that we can talk about tonight, but we'll just address a few. Let's look at some of the arguments that question the resurrection. So, some have said that we can't trust the Bible historically. You know, they say, you know, the Bible's historically unreliable, it's a bunch of legends, um, you know, there was, they're still around, I guess, but it was really highly publicized, a forum of scholars called the Jesus Seminar, stated that no more than 20% of Jesus' sayings and actions in the Bible can be historically validated. I have to read that because I haven't internalized that yet. <laughs> Can we trust the New Testament accounts of the resurrection? Are the four gospel accounts of the resurrection historically reliable? Well, many who argue against the historical accuracy of the New Testament say things like, you know, the Gospels were written after Jesus, you know, after he died. They can't be trusted, and many believe that the Gospels are imagined. They're products of people's imagination. They're embellished. Some people believe that the church hierarchy later on picked the four Gospels among dozens of others only to support their agenda. Popular novel. How many Da Vinci Code readers do we have out there? You don't have to raise your hand. 
It made many more people question the resurrection. It was a hot topic several years ago. Well, this fictional book depicted Jesus as a great but clearly human teacher who many years after his death was made into a resurrected God by church leaders who did so to gain status. It's a fiction. It's a great novel. Easy read. These arguments of the Gospels being historically unreliable are not credible. Let's use our brains here. Let's use our intellect. The timing of the writing of the Gospels is far too early for the Gospels to be legends. The canonical Gospels were written at the very, at the very most 40 to 60 years after Jesus' death. Paul's letters, written just 15 to 25 years after the death of Jesus, provide an outline of all the events that we have in Jesus' life. His miracles, Jesus' teachings, the crucifixion, the resurrection. This means that the biblical accounts of Jesus' life were circulating within the lifetime of hundreds who were still alive who had been present for all of these events during Jesus' ministry. In his landmark, landmark book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, Richard Bachman talks a lot about the historical evidence that demonstrates that at the time the Gospels were written, there were still numerous well-known living eyewitnesses to Jesus' teaching and life events. And he really lays it all out in his book. These witnesses had committed all of this to memory. And they remained active in the public life of the church as the church grew throughout their lifetimes. They served as ongoing sources and guarantors of the truth of these accounts. Bakken uses evidence within the Gospels themselves to show that the Gospel writers named their eyewitness sources within the text to assure the readers of their, their, that their accounts were authentic, that they were real. Let me give you an example. Mark says that the man who helped Jesus carry his cross was the father of Alexander and Rufus. There's no reason for the author to include these names unless the readers knew the men or could find them and ask about their story. There's so many examples of that. So many examples of that. When we read about the empty tomb in all four Gospels, we hear about the women being the first witnesses to the resurrection. Now, some of us today just kind of, you know, okay. But what? In this time and place? In this society? When the Gospels were first being told, when these stories were first being told, what? Women were the first witnesses? No. If they wanted this story, this imagined story to spread, women would not have been the first witnesses. Hmm. This is a 
society in which women were assigned very low status. The identity and worth of a woman was fully based on the identity of her husband or her father or the other male figure in her life. Women had no status or worth on their own. A woman's testimony was not admissible evidence in a court. So when you're trying to make up something, you're not going to have women as your first witnesses. It would have made far more sense to have the male pillars of, of the society at the time to be your witnesses if you were making it up. The only reason women would be included in the resurrection accounts is if they were actually there. The women witnessed the resurrection. In addition, Paul tells his readers to check with the living witnesses. He says that. Check with the living witnesses. Paul refers to a body of 500 witnesses who saw the risen Christ at once. Paul's letters were designed for public reading. He wrote them to be passed on for public reading. He could not make a claim unless there really were surviving witnesses. He would have been called out. They would not have kept being passed around. Using a reasoned approach, which I'm encouraging us all to do, refutes the idea that the Gospels were anonymous, that they were evolving oral traditions, that they were made up. No, if you use a reasoned approach, you will see, as I see, that the resurrection happened. It wasn't a resuscitation. It was a resurrection. These oral histories taken down from the mouths of the living eyewitnesses preserve the words and deeds of Jesus in great detail. And the evidence of the resurrection is simply overwhelming. I would love to spend another hour with you talking about this, but Father Joe said I didn't have that long. <laughs> So, I'm going to wrap up. But I encourage you, this Lent, to dig. Dig in. Seek meaning. Use your God-given intellect. Ask the big and the small questions. Seek answers. Read the apologists. Study and analyze the scripture. Take the resurrection account. The four Gospels, they're different. But look for the truth that that collective body gives us. Look at the reason why we have four Gospels. Have you ever asked that? Well, why, why do we need four different accounts? Look at that. These are great questions. These are great ways. It's not going to push you away from God, I promise you. It's going to bring you in a closer relationship with God if you're really pursuing that. So this Lent, 
Let's use our minds and continue to use our hearts and our souls in an active pursuit on this journey to make Lent more meaningful. Thank you all so much for having me. Sorry, I should have made that introduction better. So I am the Dean of Spiritual Life at the Episcopal School of Jacksonville. And so we have pre-K through 12th grade students, three different campuses, and I oversee all the spiritual life on all three campuses. So I get the breadth and depth of all uh, childhood and adolescence. So I have been in parish ministry. I was in came out of seminary, from this diocese, raised up in this diocese. As I told you, John Calarini was one of my mentors. Um, went to uh, Tallahassee first, and was in a parish there. The bishop asked me to come back to Jacksonville to take a parish over here in Jacksonville, and I did that for a while. Great time, and loved parish ministry very much. And then, um, the position came open at the Episcopal School of Jacksonville, and it was the right time for me in my ministry to be with young people, and so that's where I find myself today. So thank you for asking that. Yes? This is, um, I hope you have enough time to answer this one, because I love how you were um, saying, you know, about the apologetics, and you said one of the biggest questions you get from the kids is about um, how, it, you know, hasn't science Credited Christianity, yeah. and that you're like, that answer that one. Um, so, what are your best examples of the ways that you explain it yeah. to I, I can't answer that, and I love when the kids ask that question. Of course, it takes longer than the few minutes we have, but just, just off the top of my head, first of all, I think okay, science is a look at the natural world, theology, the study of God is a look at the, at the supernatural. They're two different disciplines. We would not, if we wanted to learn more about English, we're not gonna open up a math textbook. If we wanna know more about God, we don't open up a science book. Um, often, a, a long discussion of Genesis 1 and 2 ensues, okay? Because people look at, gen at, at the creation story. There's actually two creation stories in Genesis 1 and 2 and say, well, that proves that, you know, that science, you know, and, and Christianity don't mix. Not true. And that explanation takes a while, but I'm very willing to do that with students and sit down and talk about it and why God is creator. And God creates this beautiful world that is full of science, that is full of animals and nature and the glory of our beautiful creation. Um, so, sorry, I, I could go on and on, but there is an explanation, there's, and there's a lot we can say about that. Um, but but I, I think in a nutshell, and in a synopsis, just, you know, we, we try to make it an either or, and it's not, it's a false dichotomy. But it's just a false dichotomy. It's not science or God. 
it's science and God. Okay, they don't have to be in conflict with each other. Anything else? Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you so much, Teresa. We've got two more of these. We've got uh, our buddy Roger Williams, the Reverend Roger Williams from uh, Philip R. Cousins AME over on Orange Picker Road. will be with us uh, after too long of a break. Uh, uh, he'll be with us next week. I'm hoping he'll bring some of his congregation uh, with him as well. And then our own uh, Deacon Beth Renault will be our final speaker uh, in two weeks. And then three weeks, that'll be Holy Week Wednesday, we'll have the concert with uh, Bob Moore and Heather Turvey. And Haydn's last, uh, well, it's not Haydn's last seven words, but it's Haydn's work <laughs> about the last seven words he used. That same night, there is an agape meal with the Daughters of the King. And that is open for, it's not, it's sponsored by the Daughters of the King, but it's open for everyone. The agape meal is start, it starts at what time? 5.30. 5.30. So uh, this church has a lot of agape in it and <laughs> might have a hard time, but I think you can get it in an hour and a half. So yeah, that's, that's good. It'll be a great meal. Uh, that's, it's, that's a move from what we've done in the past where we have the children's uh, agape meal at, at the Mon during the Monday Thursday service. So that's, it's now for, for the whole parish. That's an exciting, exciting move. All right, well, Teresa, what we need for you to do is give us a blessing because we stopped before we got uh, our uh, blessing. And, uh, and so if you'll give us a blessing and then we will get out of here before 729. <laughs> the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon you now and remain with you always. Amen. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. That's good. Y'all didn't, didn't knock this off or anything. <laughs>